joy. Joy as we come to understanding the gift you've given to us through your Son. Lord, I pray that as we continue to worship you through your word, as we study it, as we read it, as we look to what you have been telling us for years and years and years, even as we looked at last week from the beginning of time as we know it, that the sun is coming, the sun has come, and will come again, Lord. And I thank you today that we have a chance to celebrate that. I pray that as we go to your word that you would lead us, guide us, direct us as we look to your word, and that we would understand not only who you are, but Lord, we'd worship you as the king that you are. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we have an opportunity again uh, to come to God's Word, and we started a series last week, The Heralds of Christmas, and uh, last week, if you remember our time together, we looked at the idea that even from the time of creation with the fall that followed right behind it, that we saw that there was a perfect world destroyed by sin that would be restored to what was right again through Jesus Christ. That he was heralded from the very beginning of history that there would be a savior, there would be a restorer, there would be one that would reconcile men to himself and reconcile the world to himself. And we looked at the fact that part of that's being completed right now in and of our lives, and part of it we're still waiting on. As we just sang joy to the world, we remember that one day Jesus again will come, and all that was once set wrong will be set right again. And we understand that Christ is the restorer. And we saw that as our first herald was creation itself and the fall. And as we look through history, now we see the future as well. That Christ, indeed, is the restorer of all things. And so we continue on this uh, journey, if you will, this series of looking at the heralds of Christmas. Those throughout scripture who have told us that indeed, uh, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God was coming And today we're going to move on. We're going to talk about the prophets. The prophets heralded the coming of Christ. It's actually going to take us two weeks. I was planning on doing this in one week, but it's not going to work. We're going to look at two weeks, how the prophets, specifically looking at the Old Testament prophets, how they heralded the coming of Christ, even in some cases thousands of years before Jesus would come onto the scene. And we know that we see throughout Scripture that the prophets, and really all of the Old Testament, points towards a coming of Christ, that the Messiah would come. And remember, when we use Messiah and Christ, they're interchangeable words. One's Hebrew, one's Greek. But we look at the Christ, we look at Messiah coming to us. Now, prophets, many times, we, we know we've heard prophecy and we've heard, you think about, you know, telling the future, which in this case is what the part of prophecy we're talking about. But really, it's truth-telling. It's, it's taking something and declaring the truth and in the case of the old testament prophets we see that they were declaring the truth of the future uh it's interesting as i was thinking about you know this idea of telling the future like today's world is kind of fascinated with that idea like you know you've got palm readers you've got card readers of different kinds you've got uh you know magic balls you got the magic eight ball i was actually gonna bring my sons today you know you shake it up you know and then 
you ask it a question, and it's supposed to tell you the future, and you know it's totally bogus. Because then you ask it like questions that you know, like, am I going to eat breakfast in five minutes? Absolutely not. Okay, and then I eat. So, but there is a... Because nothing's keeping me between my food and me. So anyway, so... Um, so we're kind of fascinated with that. And it's interesting because this time of the year, it's Christmas time, right? And uh, I don't know, men, okay, men, I don't know if your wives are like this, or maybe there's some guys that are like this, but my wife is in love with Hallmark Christmas movies, right? Those cheesy, painful to watch, just, oh, wow, we got a boo. All right, uh, I've actually had some fun with the Hallmark Christmas movies this year. Uh, as Felicia's been watching them, and by watching them, I mean our like DVR list is literally full uh, of Christmas movies that Hallmark puts out, which, by the way, all have the same plot, just with different characters. Um, but that's where this gets fun, right? So I'll sit with Felicia. She'll, start, she'll be watching one of these shows, and what I love doing is I sit there, and I'm like, all right, so this is exactly how this movie's going to go. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. There's going to be a problem. There's going to be a problem. This, this guy and girl who don't think they like each other, they're going to like each other. But then there's going to be an issue. I don't know what that's going to be, but sometimes I can even tell. You know, this person's going to do this. That person's going to do that. They're going to be upset. But then, with about 10 minutes left in the movie, it never fails. It's, I'm not joking. I've kept the time. About 10 minutes left, all of a sudden, something is revealed, and that problem is solved, and in 10 minutes... They're kissing, they're happy, and everything is good. And by the way, usually Santa comes in at some point. Who knows how that works out? I know that's a funny story, but I was starting to think about that, how interesting, interested we are in telling the future. Like, it's been fun for me to kind of foretell what I think is going to happen in these movies, and I'm not always right, so I'm not a prophet, okay? Don't, don't stone me um, today. But what, it's interesting that we're fascinated by that But here we have the prophets of the Old Testament who are foretelling not just a movie, who cares, but foretelling history, foretelling future, foretelling that there would be a Messiah that would be coming, and there's no question. The story has already been told. It's just a matter of it coming to pass. In much the same way as I watch those Christmas movies, I kind of know what's going to happen, and Felicia knows what's going to happen. Some of those movies she's seen ten times. She knows exactly what's going to happen, and yet she wants to watch it to see the ending, to see what happens. And the truth of the fact is, is we have scripture, we have the prophets, we have all of the Old Testament who tells us what the story is all about, that the story is all about Jesus Christ, that Christ is coming to redeem sin, to restore this world, and we see it from the very beginning of scripture all the way until the end. We see that Christ is the ultimate restorer, and Christ is coming and will come again. And so we know the story, and we just look forward to seeing it unfold. And that's a little bit what we talked about last week, but we continue this week to talk about this. Uh, a, few, a few passages I want to look at this morning before we get into what the prophets foretold. What were they heralding about Christmas? Before we get there, I just want to say that this is not something that uh, I came up with on my, on my own or some man has made up that somehow the prophets have talk about Jesus. Like, we're not making that up. Actually, we see twice in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, that we actually see... Jesus himself, and then uh, Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist, uh, also, who are going to talk about the very idea that the prophets, indeed, were there to talk about Jesus. We're going to start with what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24. In Luke chapter 24, we get there, 
and we see what Jesus has to say. Something very, very interesting in chapter 24, verses 25 through 26. In verses 25 and 26 of chapter 24 in the book of Luke, Jesus says this. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it necessary for Christ that he should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And this was as he's on the road to Emmaus with some disciples of his that aren't understanding what has happened. And Jesus now says that haven't you read the prophets? That you know who I am, you know who Christ is concerning me, all the things from his birth to his death, it was foretold. Now, we're not going to go through all the prophecies that are in the Old Testament that point to Christ's life. There are so many, it would take us a whole series of probably a year to look at all of the prophecies that are fulfilled in the life of Christ. But specifically, we're going to, as we talk about Christmas, we're going to talk about how the prophets taught us about Jesus, not only his birth, but also who this baby would be. Who this baby would be. Earlier in the book of Luke, we also see the same idea being said by uh, uh, by Zechariah, as uh, he is, uh, he John the Baptist is born. He knows Jesus is going to be coming, and then we see he makes a prophecy. He makes a prophecy here, starting in verse sixty-seven. Uh, we will look at verses sixty-eight and sixty-nine, though. And this is what Zechariah says. He says, "Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke." by the mouth of his holy prophets of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And he goes on and continues in talking in the same way. But as we look at this passage, he makes it very clear that the salvation that was to rise up, that now Zechariah is seeing happening as John the Baptist has been born and Jesus is being born and he's about to be born and Zechariah understands that God is about to do something incredible. And how does he know that God is about to bring the Messiah and how salvation is going to come to the world? He knows because of the prophets of old. The prophets of old foretold the fact that Jesus and John the Baptist both would come and this would be for salvation for the world. And so Jesus says that Zechariah understands that even during the Christmas story that the prophets of old, of the Old Testament, have foretold this for long ago. Christmas wasn't just heralded by the angels. It wasn't just heralded by the shepherds. It was heralded by prophets who lived even thousands of years before Christ. And so let's look real quickly, first of all, as we move on to what the prophets have told us. The prophets foretold the birth of Christ. Let's start there. It's very basic, uh, but the prophets foretold Christmas. They said Christmas is going to come. The Messiah, the Christ, is going to be born. Uh, And it gives us a couple specific things. And many of you know these things. But the first thing we know that is true is that Christ would be born to a virgin. That Christ would be born to a virgin. We know this to be true. We see this in, throughout Scripture, we know as we read the New Testament, this is indeed what happened, that an angel came to Mary who was a virgin who had not known a man, and yet she becomes pregnant with God's child. And we know that to be true. But that was foretold way back in Isaiah's time. And many of you have seen this passage, have heard this passage. But in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. In Isaiah seven fourteen, this is what we read. 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this prophecy most likely had a short-term uh, fulfillment and a long-term, but we know the long-term fulfillment is through Christ. That there was a child born of a virgin, you would call Emmanuel, God with us. That God would come as a baby being born by a virgin. And we see this fulfilled in Matthew 1, 22 through 23. Won't go there, so we're not flipping all over. But you know the story. You know that Mary indeed is a virgin and gives birth to a son. They name him Jesus because he'd save his people from their sins. He is God with us. Not only did the prophets foretell that there would be a birth of a virgin, but also that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Of all things to predict, they predict the very town. And they pick a town that is not much to look at. They pick a lowly town, and it's Bethlehem. And they know that this is where Christ indeed will be born. And we see that in the book of Micah, as many of you already know. Some of you are probably already there. As we go to the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2 of Micah. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, for you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, and from you shall come forth for me the one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. We see once again that the prophets foretell the Messiah, the coming anointed one, would come from Bethlehem. And indeed that is fulfilled in Matthew 2, 1 through 6. And we know that. We know that Christmas story. We hear it every year. Even for those of us who don't go to church every week, we know the Christmas story that indeed Christ was born in Bethlehem. There were many other prophecies that we could look at, uh, such as there was a prophecy that, that, that Jesus would have to go to Egypt to come out of Egypt and that babies in Bethlehem would be killed and were told these things. And I would encourage you to read through Matthew because Matthew is beautiful because it's written to Jews who know the Old Testament. And as you read through Matthew, you see that they continually point back to the Old Testament and how Jesus is fulfilling so many different prophecies. And I would encourage you to do that. But what we understand is that Jesus' birth was not just an ordinary birth of any other child, of any other baby, any other time. That the birth of Jesus was indeed an awaited event that the world was waiting for and it was a much needed event. That it was coming, that the prophets knew it was coming. It wasn't a quiet birth in a stable. It was a birth that had been awaited for thousands of years and was finally here as we celebrate Christmas. And so those are some specific things that the prophets foretold. But here's where I really want to go to. Now, the prophets did foretell that Christmas was coming, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem of a virgin, absolutely true, and we see that that comes true. But what I want to talk about for the rest of our time together this morning is this. How did the prophets herald Christ? Who was he to be? Last week we looked at Christ as the restorer, the one who would make all things right, the one that would be the recreator, if you will, because he was the original creator and would recreate everything to be just as it should be. This week, I want to look, as we look at the prophets, the fact that they heralded Christ, the newborn baby, as king. Uh, interesting, the song choice this morning, not planned out as far as I know, and yet we're talking about the kingship of Christ. That Christ was not born just as a baby. He was born to be a king. And so we're going to quickly, and I say quickly and I try, okay? We're going to quickly go 
through some of the Old Testament prophets, what did they say about who the Messiah would be? And then at the end of today, I want to say, if we understand that the prophets foretold that Jesus is king, then we know Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king, how do we then respond to our king? But we're going to take a little bit of a journey through the Old Testament. And I'm going to give you some references here uh, in the New Testament that confirm these things to be true. I'm not going to be flipping back and forth just for time's sake. But I would encourage you as you have your notes to look those up on your own time. See where the fulfillment is seen. We're going to be going all the way back to the book of Numbers to start out. Because we're starting and I'm going to look at several prophets that foretold the coming of Christ as king. The first one is Moses. And many of us don't often think of Moses as a prophet, but indeed he was. Uh, Moses is really arguably one of the first prophets, right? So uh, in Numbers, this is in one of the five books that Moses writes, uh, we see this first idea of the Messiah being king in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. In Numbers twenty four seventeen, this is what we read. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. But the idea here, we see that the scepter will come, and it will crush its enemies. There will be a star and a scepter, and I want to just give a quick, uh, a quick disclaimer here. We understand that this is Balaam giving this oracle. It's not Moses himself. And yet Moses records it for us here in Numbers. And so what we see is as it's recorded that there would be a star and a scepter that would rise from Israel. Now you say, how does that rep- apply to the, uh, to the New Testament? Well, if you look at the New Testament, very interesting. What did the kings of the East, or the wise men, what did they see that led them to Jesus? It was a star that rose out of Israel. Very interesting as we see that they understood that to mean that Jesus indeed would be king of the Jews. The wise men understood when they come to Herod and they say, we're following the star, we're here to see who's the king of the Jews. The wise men knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that the person they were going to see was not just a baby, the person they were going to see was not just a toddler, the person they were going to see was not just another child, but they were going to see a king. And obviously a scepter. We think of a king and a scepter and we think of kingship, we think of the star that led the wise men to the king of Israel. As we go through the Old Testament, we also then go and see Samuel. Samuel and 2 Samuel. Uh, in 2 Samuel, the book, uh, we look at verse, chapter 7, verses 15 through 16. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 15 through 16. And this is what we read as we come there. This is Samuel talking to David here in chapter 7. Chapter 7, once again, verses 15 and 16. As, as Samuel is talking about who the king would be, this is what we read. It says, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, talking about David, from whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
In accordance with all these words, in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. David is, man, I am messing up today because I'm giving you the wrong prophets with the wrong people. I'm going by the authors, okay? So let's just throw this out. All right, so Moses talks about this prophecy. Now Samuel talks about this prophecy that is made by Nathan, that David would have a throne that would last forever, that there would be a king that would be from the line of David that would last Forever. So in 2 Samuel 7, verses 15 through 16, we see that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. If you want to see that proven, you will see that it's proven in the Matthew genealogy. Go to the book of Matthew, and it traces from David, actually even further back, it traces from Abraham all the way to Jesus, and in that process shows exactly how David is related to Jesus. That Jesus indeed is a follower in the line of David, and that the throne would go forth. In Luke 1, 32 through 33, we actually see this specifically. And I know I said I wouldn't turn back and forth, but in this one, I really want to look at this verse. Back in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33. It's a beautiful passage that we see this fulfillment in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, 32 and 33. And he will be great, and he will become, this is the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Sound familiar? Of course it does. We just read it in Second Samuel. That there would be a king that would come from David and the kingdom would be forever. This is the fulfillment of the forever, the forever reign of David's line through the person of Jesus Christ. And so we see that that is foretold in the book here of Samuel as he writes it to us. The next person we're going to look at that talks about uh, prophecy regarding Christ as king is in Isaiah. If you want to go to the book of Isaiah... Once again, this will be a very popular one that many of you have heard. But Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 9, we read this prophecy regarding the coming Messiah. And we see this in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For, unto, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You can't get any more clear than this, right? Isaiah comes along and he says, This is what's coming. The Messiah who is coming. This child who would be born. The government will be upon his shoulder. He will be uh, the prince of peace. Of his government there will be no end. He'll be on the throne. He'll uphold the throne with justice and righteousness. And what is, once again, this throne will last forevermore. We see here that he would have the government on his shoulders. He would have the throne of David. We just looked at Luke 1, 32 through 33. Remember, it's the same idea there. It says when Jesus is coming that he indeed will be on the throne of his father, David. As we move on through the Old Testament, we come to the book of Daniel. I love this one. 
Because sometimes it's easily lost. But in the book of Daniel, we see something amazing. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 specifically. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. This is in one of Daniel's night visions, and this is what it says. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." Daniel here is talking about the future kingdom that would never be destroyed, that would be an everlasting dominion. This person, this one that would come, that all people would serve, that would have complete dominion and be king over all. And who does he call this person? He says, one comes like a son of man. A son of man. Now, many of you know this phrase, son of man. Why would you know that phrase? Well, Jesus himself Jesus called himself the Son of Man numerous occasions. Actually, Jesus called himself the Son of Man 81 times. 81 times. Not the Son of God, not the Messiah, um, not uh, the King even, but he calls himself a Son of Man, the the Son of Man. 81 times, which is more than any other title. Now, here's the thing. This idea of Son of Man, I believe it applies to two things. It's hard. But first of all, it's that Jesus is once again showing that he is man, right? He's not just God. He is man and God. He is 100% both. And the hypostatic union is real. And we see that God, he is God in the flesh, and yet he's in the flesh. He's still man. And so, yes, Son of Man references that. But you've got to think that Jesus knew what he was referring to by calling himself the Son of Man 81 times. And some scholars disagree, some agree, but I believe that as we go back to Daniel, this makes a whole lot of sense. See, Jesus was not only declaring his humanity, but declaring that he would have an eternal kingship. So we see this to be fulfilled in Jesus and will continue to be fulfilled and eventually will be ultimately fulfilled as he sets up his kingdom. And so we see the Son of Man idea, that Jesus called himself Son of Man because he would have an everlasting kingdom that all people would serve him. We can go to Revelation and we see that happening, right? At the end of time, we see all people are going to be, not be, going to be bowing before him. All people will be bending their knee. All people will be understanding that he is king. For some, it'll be too late. For some of us, we'll already know that to be true. And yet, everyone will serve him. He will be recognized as king. The final one we're going to look at in the Old Testament as we continue our journey through, and by the way, there's so many more. I could have chosen more, but these were some main ones that I found, uh, is in the book of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah, towards the end of the Old Testament, also gives us this prophecy that we understand that Jesus, the Messiah, would come as a king in Zechariah 9. And many of you know this. A lot of times we'll talk about this passage on Palm Sunday, away from Christmas, but uh, this also has some reason to talk about this morning. So as we go to Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 10, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
All right, so this is what we see, and it continues in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This coming king who would ride in on a donkey would would bring salvation and would reign and rule to the ends of the earth. No borders. An unbordered rule. Well, who is this person? Well, Messiah would ride a colt to establish an unbordered reign. Well, Matthew 21, 1 through 17. Matthew 21, 1 through 17. And we all know the story, at least most, I would say almost all of us have to, where before Jesus is crucified, that week before, on Palm Sunday, we celebrate it. He marches into Jerusalem. They're putting down palm trees. They're shouting Hosanna to him. They're giving him a kingly procession as he comes into Jerusalem. And what is he riding on? Indeed, he's riding on a donkey's colt. He's riding on a donkey, as we're told he would. And even as we go to Matthew 21, you would know that it actually says right there that that is being done to fulfill a specific prophecy. But we stop there so many times and we say, okay, so we see this this king riding in on a donkey. But then as we read verse 10, we see that this rule that is going to be, this reign that he will have will be unbordered. It will go forever and it will not be challenged. That is the hope we have of the coming Messiah, that he is king and his dominion, his rule, his king, kingdom will be forevermore and will not be destroyed. And so we get to the New Testament after all of these Old Testament prophets have told us. And I told you about the book of Matthew and it tells about all the prophecies that have been fulfilled. The other thing that Matthew does a beautiful thing of in his gospel is he shows Jesus as king. Time and time and time again. Actually, you'll find throughout Matthew that Jesus himself, when he's preaching, uses the concept of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is here and coming and that people need to understand that. And so we get to Matthew and all the Old Testament prophets have been pointing us to the birth of Jesus. And even where Matthew starts with his genealogy, he points out the fact that Jesus is from David and therefore is the rightful king that would rule forever. So we know that that is the background that we have as we enter into Matthew. And so here's what I want to say. How do we respond to the king? I believe when we get to Matthew, when we get to the New Testament, we start to see not only now if we truly believe that Jesus is king, which we know he is, from Old Testament to New Testament, he is king. Uh, In Revelation, king of kings, lord of lords, we sang about him being king. And as we understand him to be king, that is great. We have the theology of Christ as our king. And it's good to have that theology, but what does it mean for how we live? We can worship Christ as king, but what does that look like? What does that mean? How do we respond to the king of kings and the Lord of lords? Very simply, I would say this. At the very least, what we see in in the book of uh, 1 Timothy is that we need to honor Christ as king. We need to honor Christ as king. 1 Timothy 1.17, we'll read this again as we close this morning. But to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As king, as only God, as the king of the ages, we, he deserves our honor and he reserve, deserves glory. And so we need to honor Christ as king. 
What does that look like? I want to go back to the book of Matthew. As I said, the book of Matthew talks about the kingdom of God over and over again. And Jesus makes it very clear that there are certain things that is expected if we are going to be in the kingdom. Or in other words, if we are going to put ourselves under the kingship of Christ. If we are going to honor him as Christ, or king, if we are going to honor him, there will be things in our lives that that will look like. We will respond to his kingship through honoring him, and how we do that is three simple ways, well, simple, but yet not so simple, as we look at this morning. And the first one we are going to look at is in Matthew 4.17. Matthew 4.17. And this is... This is right after... Uh, Jesus has been tempted, uh, and then we see Jesus is starting his ministry, and this is where we end up, and this is where Jesus' ministry is really starting. In verse 17 of chapter 4 of Matthew, it says this, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first way we can honor Christ as king is to repent. So let's take some time to talk about this. We just had a great conversation as elders on Monday night about repentance and faith. What does it look like? What Does something come first? Does repentance come before faith? Does faith come before repentance? How does that work? And we know that we need to believe in Jesus, but also we're told to repent. And how does all of that work together? And in this passage, what is Jesus preaching? He's preaching repentance. He's saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is coming. The king is here. Therefore, repent. Well, we know that the word repent literally means to turn. Many of you have probably heard that before. But then there's still this question of what do we turn from and what do we turn to. Now some people say this is simply a change in action. That you will repent in the point where you will start doing the right thing and stop doing the wrong thing. I think that's part of it. Some people will say it's a change of mind. That you, 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 believe, you start believing in God and, and you stop believing the lies of the world. And I believe that's part of repentance. But here's the thing. When we think about belief, when we think about faith... The essence of faith in Christ is this. It's trust. The essence of faith, when somebody in Scripture says believe or have faith, it's about putting your trust in something or someone. And in this sense, we are trusting Jesus with our life. And if we have faith, then repentance follows right along with it. See, it's not a what's first, what's second. It's this. Repentance and faith come together. Same, same coin, two sides. Many have said it that way. But the idea is when you truly believe with your heart of hearts, when you have faith and you truly trust in Christ, you are turning. You are repenting. Because what you're saying is, is I am no longer believing and trusting in myself. But indeed, I am trusting in Christ. That is the repentance. I am turning from my trust in myself and I'm turning towards faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that is why repentance and faith go together because when we, when we truly believe, we will turn. It's a natural thing. You can't have one without the other. It's not simply a behavior issue. It's not simply a mind issue. It's a whole life issue where we say no longer, and as we talk about kingship, no longer am I going to live as though I am king, but I am going to live as Christ is king. That is what repentance is. It's turning from our kingdom to his kingdom. That is a turn that we all 
must make. And many of us here have made that turn where we have stopped trusting in ourselves and building a kingdom for ourselves. And instead, we, build, uh, we, we look to Christ to build his kingdom through us. And a lot of us have changed and a lot of us have turned. But my call out to you today is that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died after he was born, and we've been talking about that. He lived a perfect life as the king who was born. He gave his life, which we're going to talk about so much more next week. He died on the cross for your sin, for my sin, so that we didn't have to pay the penalty, which was us having to spend separation, be separated from God forever and ever and ever. And he took that away if we'll only come to him in faith because of his death and his resurrection. And he said, I have defeated sin and death. I am king. Come to me. Repent and believe. That's what we ask, and that's what he asks. And so today, if you have not believed in Christ to the point where it causes you to turn from your kingdom to his, then make today the day that you know Jesus, that you accept him as king. As king. We need to repent. But this is not just for the one time when we get saved, but this is a constant process, right? It's a constant process of remembering that this world is not for me. This world is not my kingdom. This world is not about me trusting myself because I am nothing. But it's trusting Christ. It's living in his kingdom. It's living in his will. And it's looking for him. And that is a daily struggle. And we all need to not only repent when we come to him for the first time, but live a life of constant repentance. That is how we honor the king. The second way we honor the king is we continue through Matthew. And I love this parable that Jesus gives, actually two separate parables, here in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. Jesus specifically is talking about the kingdom of heaven, and he's using this kingship idea, this, the, the verbiage that talks about kings and sovereignty. He says, The kingdom of heaven... Is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. These two parables taken together lead us to our second thing. Not only do we repent, but we also need to surrender. You say, well, isn't that about the same thing? Well, I guess you could say that. But as we look at this passage here, this parable that Jesus gives, the man who sold everything to buy a field so that he could dig up the treasure, and then a merchant who found this pearl that is worth more than anything else, so sells everything he has to buy that one pearl, that is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so my question to us is, are we really willing to surrender our lives and our comforts and our securities for what Christ has to offer, for his life, to live for his kingdom, to live for his glory. Are we willing to give up what we have? Are we willing to surrender our lives completely? What we own, who we are, our very identity, are we willing to surrender all of that for the sake of knowing Christ? But the beautiful thing about these parables, this isn't about you need to suffer so and suffer hard because you're that's what you need to do because it's expected no they sell everything they have for the joy of the treasure for the joy of the pearl you see what christ offers is so much better it's infinitely better than anything 
our world has to offer, anything that our desires have to offer, Christ is so much more valuable and we're foolish not to give up everything for what he can give because we're missing out on the very best for what is just going to pass away. And so are we willing to surrender all we have? And like I said, this is a one-time thing, sure, but it's also a lifestyle. It's surrendering daily to Christ. It's taking up our cross, as he would say, as he continues on through the New Testament. It's saying, I'm going to live for him and not for myself. He is what matters. My question is, is do we have that passion? Do we truly view Jesus as more valuable than anything else? And I would say if we look deep enough, each of us has something or some things in our life that we care so deeply about that, are, that we just don't understand how much greater Jesus has it for us. Consider that. So we honor Christ by repenting, by surrendering. And the last one I'm going to look at is by being humble. By being humble. You see... We can repent and surrender, and that's great. And in that process of doing those things, of turning to Christ and surrendering to Christ, the natural result should be humility. Matthew chapter 18. This is the passage where Jesus is talking about children. And the reason he's talking about children is because the disciples come to him in chapter 18. And this is what they ask. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want to know who's going to be the greatest. They want to know who's going to be ruling right next to Jesus. They want to know who's going to have the most power. That's what they're concerned with. And Jesus takes a child, puts him in the midst of them, and says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. We see here in this passage that Jesus is very clear that the kingdom of heaven, if you want to live in the kingdom, if you want to live as honoring the King Christ, King Jesus, then you will be humble like children. How are children humble? Well, my kids sometimes aren't so humble. But what I can tell you, though, is that children are fully dependent upon their parents. They might not think so, but they are. Children need their parents. Children put themselves under. And that is the humility that we have to have as we come to Christ, that we are not any greater than anyone else, that we, that we desperately need him. We can't do this on our own. We can't have power in ourselves. The disciples wanted power, and Jesus says, No, you need humility. You need to understand that it's me is always what you need and you desperately need me. And we desperately need Christ. We need to come in humility. And that humility is going to be seen in the way we treat others. That fast forwards us here in this chapter in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to fast forward now to verse 21. In this context, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He's trying to get them to realize how important it is to be humble and to look out for the needs of others and not just for themselves. And we get to this point in verse 21 where Peter asks a pretty dumb question, but Jesus answers him. And Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And how often do I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Seven times. If 
it was only seven times, none of us could be forgiven by each other anymore. Jesus isn't saying that there's a number here, a magic number. He goes on to talk about the parable of the king and the servant. And I want to read this real quickly. Many of you know it. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, once again, using this kingship analogy, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him and owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and with his children and with all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. When his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And also, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Interesting passage. Peter's asking, I only have to forgive like seven times, right? And Jesus is like, no, 70 times seven. What Jesus is saying is don't stop forgiving. Because think about it, no matter how many times, I know I'm paraphrasing here, but through this passage, what happens? We see a king who, a a servant owed him an exorbitant amount of money, an amount of money that he would never, ever be able to pay. And the king forgives his debt. Beautiful. The same servant then has just a small debt that is owed to him, and he chokes the guy and and throws him in prison. And the master obviously is upset because this person did not understand, if you were forgiven this much, how could you not forgive that little? And here is the thing that Jesus is saying to Peter, that forgiveness doesn't stop, because why? Well, we've been forgiven of our sin debt completely. If we have come to Christ, we know Christ, we know him, we love him, we're believing in him, then our sins have been removed completely. How dare we not forgive our little sins that are committed against us? There is no way, no matter how many times we forgive one another, that it's even going to come close to comparing what Jesus did for us. When Jesus died on that cross and forgave our sins, he... He declared us righteous. We are righteous in the eyes of God. We can have eternal life. We can have eternal hope. We have everything we'll ever need through Jesus and his sacrifice. And nothing, no matter how many times we forgive, it'll never, ever reach that amount of forgiveness. And so therefore, we need to forgive. And what's the point? Why about forgiveness? He's talking about humility. He's talking about understanding body life. But the whole point here is this his love because he is a king who loves leads us to love others and so if we're going to honor christ as king we're going to repent we're going to turn from ourself and we're going to turn to him we're going to surrender we're going to say look this life is worth nothing compared to what i can what jesus offers everything and then we're going to be humble and realize that we are nothing and we need to love one another and put others first and put christ first because we are nothing That is what he reminds us of as we come into the kingship of Christ.
with all that being said, I'm assuming we're singing another song. So if you guys would please stand and join us as we sing.